Hi, and welcome to another season of Shout for Libraries. We are a group of students from the School of Library and Information Studies, and this program, Shout, is our way of illuminating the discussions and drama going on within the discipline itself, Library and Information Studies during the tumultuous era of the information age. Some of these discussions may be unique to the discipline itself, but others may be a disciplinary perspective on a broader social issue. One of these latter issues, one that our culture as a whole is dealing with right now, is the way in which policing and incarceration, as both institutions and logics, are embedded in our society, and whether or not they solve the issues that they are assumed to address. At the heart of the matter is the concept of public safety, a clear and key concern for public libraries, of which it has been said are one of the last formalized public spaces in our privatized culture. What is public safety? Who is assumed to be in need of being kept safe? And from whom or what must they be protected? How do we guarantee public safety in libraries? Join us over the next few episodes as we look at some of the myriad ways in which these questions are asked and answered within the institution. From alternative justice models to library service in incarceral institutions, we hope to give you a peek at the many ways in which the library resists or implicates itself in this aspect of society. This month, in order to whet your appetite, we're reaching back into the archives, all the way to our second season, Lo, Those Many Years Ago, where the Shout team interviewed Dr. Danielle Allard, Dr. Tammy Oliphant, and Angela Liu. If you like this interview, be sure to come back next month, where we'll be checking back in on this research four years later. Hi everyone, my name is Kendra, and I'm here to remind our listeners that a really important part of celebrating our love for each other on Valentine's Day, Galentine's Day, Valentine's Day, whatever you call it, is consent. While I can imagine the many and wonderful ways consent plays out in our libraries, unfortunately, sexual harassment is still a huge part of navigating that landscape and all the relationships involved in library work. And so I spoke to Daniel Allard, Tammy Oliphant, and Angela Liu about sexual harassment of library employees and the work they're doing to bring this conversation to the forefront. Hello, I'm Danielle Allard. I'm um, a faculty member here at the School of Library and Information Studies. I'm Angela Liu. Um, I'm a second year student in the MLIS program here at SLIS. Hello, my name is Tammy Oliphant and I'm an assistant professor here at the School of Library and Information Studies. Great, so would you mind just defining uh, sexual harassment for our listeners? Yes, so more broadly, um, Sexual harassment can be visual or verbal or physical. I think we often think of it um, in a physical context and forget that it can also be non-physical. It often comes in the context of comments or gestures or questions that might make someone feel uncomfortable um, because they're of a sexual or gendered nature. Um, I've been looking at sexual harassment in terms of third-party harassment, so uh, in a library context that looks like patrons harassing library workers. So I'm wondering if you can help us contextualize um, patron-perpetrated sexual harassment at the library and the ways in which it's either or both uh, similar and different to other service industry jobs. Library workers are typically women. They're often young women. They're often racialized women. uh, And they're on the front lines providing services. And there's an assumption that, um, that it is a requirement of them that they provide provide service and so they're there to help and it's their job to to do what is being asked of them and that sets up a kind of um, structural hierarchy and it's already happening in a very gendered very um, patriarchal concept 
context, which is the world that we live in, then that is just amplified. And I think what makes libraries in particular uh, different from the hospitality sector is that we do have a social justice orientation and a lot of the patrons that do come to libraries are people who might not be empowered in other ways in their everyday lives. So I think that tension potentially makes this a different type of scenario. Um, I, th I think that we're in an interesting sphere in libraries where the power dynamics look a little bit different than some of the other industries. Um, I mean, the, the male to female power dynamics is, is the key to a lot of sexual har harassment that's perpetrated in general. Um, and then I think we touched briefly on the feminization of library work. Um, so 80, 85% of library workers right now are, are women, and I think 80% of MLIS grads are women, so that doesn't look like it's going to change anytime soon. Um, so we're particularly vulnerable in a very feminized profession. Um, we're also in a very sexualized profession where the stereotype of the sexy librarian is still um, very prevalent, and I think that plays into a lot of the ways that um, sexual harassment is manifested in the library. Um, this kind of fetishization, is that a word? Fetishization and fantasization of the sexy librarian character. Just to add on to what Angela was saying as well, um, so a lot of people that are potentially sexually harassing library staff are people who are going to return. So another difference with the hospitality industry is that the customer will leave. Uh, so you potentially have to face someone or a patron um, on a regular basis. So there's that possibility as well too. Yeah, and that's what I was going to ask or um, speak to because I think there's two things that are going on in a library specifically, and I think you spoke to the social justice component. So this commitment to access, which I think is not necessarily true in a restaurant industry um, or somewhere that is... Access to good food. Yeah. <laughs> but um, there's that, and then also this idea that people um, can come back and we're committed to public space as being accessible to people. So I wonder how we contend with those sort of issues while also trying to ensure um, and be accountable to the safety of those working in our libraries. So I don't think that all behaviors are allowed right now at the library and we just have to include sexual harassment onto that list of, of things that are not okay to do. Um, just related to what Angela had said as well, I think that we need to give people uh, not the benefit of the doubt, but a generous reading. Um, you know, people who maybe are not aware that their behavior is inappropriate or that um, their verbal comments are inappropriate, because I mean, this could be a whole lifetime of making these kind of comments, especially to younger women. Yeah. Um I really appreciate and agree with that. And I think this is coming from my own experience of working at a library where often punitive measures are taken when somebody transgresses a boundary or a law uh, or policy. And um, often that punitive measure is, oh, you're, you're banned from the library or you're gone. And I think, you know, we talk about this culture of accountability, but we can also talk about disposability. And we talk about how um, this is part of our community and we're also an educational institution, so what is our role in, you know, trying to facilitate that sort of education while also protecting the safety of individuals in the library 
while also not replicating other forms of violence in the form of policing um, or you know, disposal or whatnot, that often is related to race and gender and socioeconomic status. So I think it's, it's a very complicated issue, but I just wonder how you would reflect on the library as a learning institution um, that often serves people with varying experiences um, or intersections of oppression um, who, as you said, might not have been exposed to these conversations before. Um, I think the problem with uh, the sexual harassment issue in general is that we're trying to hold people accountable for something that has been normal for so long. So these people are often following what they think is a normal sexual script um, of pursuing women and complimenting women. Um, so to hold someone accountable for something that has been normal for so long is really hard. Um, I think a really big piece of the puzzle is in, in terms of education is not educating um, the perpetrator directly, but educating the victims on how to address it. Um, so how do we tell people um, and make people feel safe and feel supported to stand up for themselves, to have that conversation with someone and not be worried about um, getting in trouble or saying something wrong? How do we get people to feel comfortable to take the time to report things so that we have a paper trail if it is someone that's uh, a repeated offender? So this, I don't know the answer to this, but it came up a lot in um, LIS 541, the um, LIS services to um, culturally diverse communities. And um, I think part of this problem goes back to the very first thing that was said about libraries as thinking of themselves as, as having a kind of a social responsibility to provide access. And so a sense of the library worker as, as working really hard not to be judgmental. And then, but then there, this question comes up, but if we believe in social responsibility and we believe in equity and our practice and our beliefs um, are feminist or um, anti-racist, uh, at what point do we have to be judgmental? And how does that look in this particular context where we also want to do all those other things that we talked about and still believe in them around providing um, access and being a welcoming space and inviting people in. I just think that there's a critical tension there that is, has yet to be unpacked. So I have a couple of things to say to this question, and I really like Angela's point that um, it's maybe not so much about educating perpetrators as it is about educating library workers in how to respond to that. And so that actually speaks to the work that Danielle and I are going to engage in. And I think that goes back to LIS education. We don't talk about sexual harassment at all. And we're hoping that we will be able to address it through the projects that we're working on. Um, and Angela was really instrumental in bringing this to the fore. Um, so I think that is a key component. I am worried as an LIS educator that a lot of what we do are setting young women up, especially to go into these public spaces without having any idea of how to deal with um, patrons. 
so that's a big part of the piece. Um, the other thing that I was thinking about, though, I believe it was in Sweden that they actually ran some programs in the public library, and it was for new immigrants, and it was about misogyny. It was about how women are treated in Sweden, and um, they actually had really great success with this program. So, you know, in that sense, there are, I think, things that libraries could do to address this problem and just even keeping conversations going about Me Too movement and that type of thing. So I think there are things that we can do on both sides. But for Danielle and I right now, uh, we're going to be focusing on the LAS education piece. So we would like to um, do work around LIS education, particularly educating students about sexual harassment in libraries. And that would include a broad understanding of what sexual harassment is, how it might be enacted in a library, and um, provide, so, so have a kind of a structural overview and understanding of it as a, a social issue um, and but a critical component of it component of it would also be a toolkit a set of um, practices um, that one could um, uh, use to respond to or react to um, sexual harassment so one of the things that I have noticed also from my time working at a library um, is that sometimes sexual harassment originates in the library and it follows you out of the library. Um, so, or conversely, sometimes it starts outside of the library and then it follows you in. Um, and I'm wondering if you imagine there being any sort of recourse around this or any sort of support um, as part of that, like, you know, desired policy change. So, for example, um, leaving the library and having a patron follow you to your car. So that's no longer on the property, but originated at the library. Um, it's certainly not unheard of. I've, I've heard of lots of situations where patrons have followed library workers to their cars, to their homes, to, onto the same buses. Um, I would argue, before getting into that, that sexual harassment follows you outside the library. Regardless of whether that means a human is following you, I think the kind of emotional impacts of it are certainly go with you when you leave work, which is part of the problem. Um, but anytime someone follows you, it certainly becomes a legal matter um, of harassment in general, um, and we shouldn't take that lightly. So that certainly warrants, for sure, a report, if not a call to the police. I'm not sure I have anything profound to say on this. It's a really, really interesting question. Um, yeah, just uh, sitting here. But then I was thinking, you know, of all of the movies, like Love Actually, even Pride and Prejudice with Mr. Collins, like the culture is stalking actually shows you really care about someone and that they're really interested. And if at first they say no, what they really mean is that you haven't tried hard enough yet. So I think this kind of speaks to um, another aspect of the problem. Um, and again, it's a big, woolly social problem as well. Um, but yeah, I just 
that would be very frightening because I just think it's someone following you. But then you see people outside of work all the time. So I'm torn on this question because, as I said earlier, I would want to give someone a generous reading. And I have to believe in the power of people to change, um, you know, or otherwise it kind of messes up my whole world views. But at the same time, anything, you know, illegal violence, physical violence, um, verbal violence, uh, you know, of course, that has to be dealt with. Um, but yeah, for me, this really presents an interesting tension between, um, you know, that generous reading and then actually, you know, what's the letter of the law? I have a, a different take on this, which is that um, while, I, while I fundamentally agree with Tammy's um, worldview of generosity uh, towards human beings. And I think that that's the way that um, we can make that the world that that that's the way that's the space where um, improvements might be made. I think that the reason that um, perpetrators can walk into these spaces, um, though there might be restraining or orders against them, for example, is because that the law and um, society generally fundamentally doesn't believe that women are at risk uh, and fundamentally doesn't believe that uh, violence against women is an issue that looks um, different for women, that um, is enacted differently. And so um, there aren't the kinds of protections in place that assume that these are real problems and and so the one of the ways that this gets addressed though um, no time soon i i'm imagining is by um, changing the way that we think about violence against women great well if nobody has anything else they want to say thank you all so much that was an interview from deep in the stacks with dr danielle allard dr tammy oliphant and Angela Liu. Join us next month when we revisit their research four years later. On this theme, we've also dug up this season four segment of It Came From The Stacks, which discusses, quite literally, police in the library. Retired Staff Sergeant Al Lund was donated to the University of Alberta in 2008 and is one of two historically significant RCMP donations housed in the Bruce Peel Special Collection. Relevant to our topic this week, lurid stories about sexy Mounties form a significant part of the Lund collection. While it may be hard to picture from the present, at one time the Red Surge was as powerful a symbol of the white masculine mastery of the exotic as Indiana Jones or James Bond. Some historical context. In 1896, publisher Frank Munsey revamped Argosy magazine, printing it on the cheapest untrimmed paper stock, a.k.a. pulp, using the steam-powered printing press. Though the components had already long existed up to this point, no one had combined cheap printing, cheap paper, and underpaid authors in a single package, 
and this was a revolution in the provision of cheap and disposable entertainment to the masses. The effect was immediate, its success ensuring that the technique was widely copied and popular magazines went from circulations of thousands per month to millions to the most popular, peaking between the 20s and the 40s. The cheap pulp that enabled this revolution was made possible by chemistry advances, but just as importantly, the abundance of material created as a booming settler population rapidly deforested the North American continent. This colonial extractive logic was integral to what would become the Canadian state, present from the beginning, a linear extrapolation being drawn from the fur trade to the oil and gas industry. One institution in particular was created to preserve the infrastructure of extraction. So the content of these pulp magazines should be familiar to anyone who's consumed English-language popular entertainment from Shakespeare to Game of Thrones. Danger, sex, violence, and fantastical locales ideally mixed together. Magazines like Thrilling Wonder Stories, <clears throat> Oriental Stories, and my personal favorite, Spicy Detective, gained huge readerships. Perhaps you can see why the RCMP were so popular. In the late 18th and early 19th century, the frontier mythology was dominant. The idea that the white men could come with guns and grit and subdue other nations and nature itself, indeed had the right to do so, was necessary as motivation and justification for the extreme labor and violence that would have to be deployed to create capital and profit where none had existed. Canada's first prime minister created the organization that would become the RCMP after the purchase of the Northwestern Territory from the Hudson's Bay Company for the purpose of maintaining law and order in the new region. What this looked like in practice, historian John Jennings has described as a legal tyranny, and while history is too complex to reduce into easily digestible narratives, some of the major operations during this early history involved relocating indigenous peoples and breaking strikes during the construction of the railway, the attempt to combat the Northwest Rebellion, and the targeting of ethnic communities such as the Chinese diaspora that were considered dangerous to Canada. For whatever reason, perhaps some kind of subconscious recognition of insecurity combined with a culture of misogyny, a certain Certain sexuality has been attached to the frontier mythology from the beginning, exemplified by narratives that present civilized white men symbolizing an apex of progress, with the fetishization of non-white peoples who are viewed as primitive and therefore closer to nature. Hopefully you can hear the air quotes in my voice. These themes tie in quite nicely with the tendencies of popular content. To return to the pulps, Argosi, the alpha pulp itself, would include stories such as The Arctic Patrol and 60 Degrees Above and Below. In 1935, three years before he'd write the unpublished manuscript that would form the basis of Scientology, L. Ron Hubbard published Yukon Madness in the August issue of Mystery Adventures, which involved an RCMP officer pursuing an Inuit villain who feeds people to his sled wolf team and an Inuit love interest named Kaya who will be forced to marry this cartoonish villain. The Lund collection includes stories with titles like The Wolf Woman of Chandindu, The Dancing Wolf, and A Daughter of the Snows. These tropes were popular enough that, in 1937, Northwest Romances was established as its own title. Each cover almost invariably shows a stoic mountie grasping a buxom woman, who is oftentimes depicted using the signifiers that Western culture represents indigeneity with, impractical short buckskin cocktail dresses, fringed in tassels, beads, or fur, long dark hair, an ethnically ambiguous face, though recognizably exotic. For extra points, the cover might also include a menacing dark-skinned threat. These depictions continue right through to the end of the pulps and into their 21st century descendants, with a Harlequin romance knockoff present in the collection called The Second Vow by Catherine Fox, published in 2001, the love interest being a fictional niece of Sitting Bull named Dancing Bird. The symbol of the Mountie has shifted over the years, at times being taken completely seriously as exemplified by these pulps, and as a bit of a cartoon joke like Dudley Do-Right. 
Both stereotypes disguise a subtler, sinister history from the systematic murder of Inuit dogs to the ongoing use of excessive force to false flag operations such as dynamite theft and staging an oil site bombing in 1999 to their own culture of sexually harassing and assaulting not only the women in the communities they were supposed to protect, as established by the Human Rights Watch report in 2013, but their own staff and officers, brought to light by the recent Merlo Davidson and Tiller class action lawsuit and their subsequent settlements. This documented history is particularly chilling, given the mythology and logics presented as aspirational within the Pulp Fiction. The stories we tell ourselves about ourselves are important and powerful. As documented in the exhibition Sam Steele's 40 Years in Canada, History or Fiction, the subject of the Bruce Peel's other RCMP collection essentially wrote himself as the Forrest Gump of Canada's first four decades of official existence, stealing and fictionalizing the accounts of his peers, codifying many of the tropes that would become the early mythology of the RCMP. As funny as it may be now, the Sexy Mountie is a fascinating fractal example of Canada itself, a self-similar pattern across different scales, the macro represented in the micro. Thanks for joining us today. This has been Shout for Libraries, and as always, don't forget to check it out. This episode of Shout for Libraries was produced by Dan Hackborn and me, Timothy Arthur, with archival audio from Kendra Cowley. Our theme music is Beanbag Fight by Scanglobe. Thanks for listening.